Thank you, Jackie. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We've been going through the book of Matthew, and we're going to be talking about delegating authority. Delegating authority. Matthew chapter 10, this is a very important transitional part of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 10, we find ourselves in one of the uh, transitional points in the gospel. We're about to have a new focus in the life and ministry of Jesus, as is noticeable in his disciples or with his disciples. In chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus told us, Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus is about to send out the first workers into his harvest. His disciples. In the same chapter, in 9, verse 37, Jesus told his disciples, But the harvest will be plentiful, but the workers will be few. Oh, how we find that out in churches, don't we? The harvest is plentiful, but to get people to do the work, it's like pulling eye teeth. Very few volunteer and very few desire to do the work, unfortunately. So this point in the gospel, the disciples have been mentioned. And they have emerged to the forefront. And we know one of them by name. And that name is Matthew in chapter 9, verse 9. Now, what marks the transition here is what happens in Matthew 10, verse 1 and following. When he's speaking primarily to his disciples, and these disciples will become his twelve. Not the crowds, and not the great, the great following as such. What will still happen from time to time, will be he will deal with the crowds and he will deal with the, the amount of disciples that are following him, but there will be a distinction here, a very uh, much important distinction of this calling out of the twelve. And so there's going to be a very clear distinction that will grow in the book of Matthew between those who are his own and those who are or who have rejected him. Now, Let's look at the summon here in chapter 10 and in verse 1. It says, And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. First of all, the summons. Jesus summons his twelve disciples here. Now, we know that there are more than 12, as I've mentioned, because disciples refers in general to a larger group. But these 12, this is a transitional point in Matthew's gospel. When Matthew men mentions the 12 disciples of Jesus, they're the inner 12, I guess you would say, the inner circle, the followers who are called the disciples of Jesus. And you'll hear this over and over again throughout the remainder of this gospel as Matthew refers to them. And he says here in uh, 
Well, in, in, in John's gospel, in, in chapter 6 and in verse 53 and following, he tells uh, him, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Then in verse 60 of, of John, we're told, Many therefore of his disciples, the large group that was following him, when they heard this saying, this was a difficult saying or a difficult statement, they said. And they said, who can listen to this? In other words, they weren't willing to follow him any longer. And many of them felt uncomfortable with what he was saying, not understanding it. And so in turn, they left and followed him no more. In verse 67 of that same gospel, it says, Jesus turned to the twelve and he said to them, this is the ones that he's talking about in Matthew 10. He said, you don't want to go away also, do you? And that's when Peter's famous statement comes out. He says, um, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. His famous statement. Now, Jesus, in Matthew 6, 13, he's taking the disciples, and we'll get to this later on, on a retreat in Caesarea and Philippi, and, and Jesus asked his disciples there, the inner 12, not the whole group, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, you know, this or that, this prophet or that prophet. And then after the, getting the answer from them, he says to the twelve, but who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So the twelve, the inner, the inner circle of disciples are the one summoned here in chapter 10. Now, what is disciple? What does the word disciple mean? We use the word as a, as a title often in general sense. Sometimes with the word, uh, it's also implied as an office. And you'll find out that this is the word used much more than just a title here, but an office with these 12 because these 12, one being the one who uh, forsake or betrays Jesus and falls away and they have to elect another one to replace him, but these 12 are the ones who become the foundational stone to, to build the church. And so, and Christ being the cornerstone of it all. So when we refer to the 12 disciples, it is used really as the office here. It can be used that way, as an apostle, in other words. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But when we get to the New Testament epistles, we're told that any follower of Jesus is called a disciple. And that's a general title, the general term of it. Those who believe and are called out with him and believe in him. And, and later on, he, he tells the disciples in Matthew, go out and make disciples of the world. Teaching them, baptizing them. In other words, they become true believers, followers of Jesus. So with that, we see that it carries a title with the beginning of these 12, 
but it's used in a general sense and to include all, but it's also used in a more abstract or general sense in the sense of believers, all who believe and come to know the Lord. So uh, disciple comes from the word to teach, and it is a follower who is taught. A disciple is one who identifies with a teacher, who believes in the message of the teacher, who follows the teacher and his teaching. And this is a popular understanding in the first century Judaism and with its teaching. They had followers, they had teachers in the synagogues and they were followers. They understood or they learned from their teacher and, and they became like them in the sense that they taught the same thing. It involves a knowledge and here the knowledge of God. But the word disciple also implies discipline. And this means that the disciples of certain teachers would be identified by the way that they taught and the way that they lived. And often the power of a teacher was, was seen in his students by the way that they looked and the way that they sounded and taught. I can recall this with many of the followers of uh, Dr. W.A. Criswell. Uh, they'd go out to uh, the, the uh, conference for preachers out there, and they would come back trying to talk like him, you know. And so they were followers of, of W.A. Criswell. They, were, uh, they would read after him and teach like him. And, and uh, uh, I remember one standing up in a small congregation and and uh, do, giving an invitation like him and saying, come by the thousands and come to know the Lord. Well, there was only a hundred or so in there, but uh, maybe it was multiplication there that he was thinking about. But here is discipline. And so in Matthew chapter 10, we, uh, we know that not only did Jesus have disciples, but others have disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. Matter of fact, they were confused over Jesus' disciples because they, they were acting differently. They were acting like Jesus. We as believers of Jesus should be very noticeable. We should be distinctive, recognizable as his disciples. Are we? Can people, tell, can people really tell that we are disciples of Jesus? Do they hear what Jesus taught from us? Do they see what Jesus lived from us? Do they see us as disciples of Jesus? We are marked by his teachings, or so we should be. But there is more than, than that being a disciple of Jesus. We're to come under his authority. And that's the key word in Matthew, authority. We're to come under his authority as our teacher. We're told that Jesus summoned the twelve in order to give them authority. Now this is interesting. This word authority is a word that's used for him. The authority that he had. The authority of Jesus had been demonstrated in the power of his teaching. In the miracles that he performed. Not only that, but casting out demons by, through exorcism. Having that power. But also demons recognizing who he is. That he is the son of God. People should recognize who we are. They should see us carrying out unique ministries. 
Ministries that will bring honor and glory to God's kingdom, not to man. It's listed in a statement. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This is the same authority he had used in demonstrating who he is. So this is a comprehensive authority. Casting out demons, healing the sick, teaching the gospel. They were to be that kind of disciple, demonstrating the king who they represented. And we are also to do that. Their identification. Look at their identification. Matthew, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reveals to us who these uh, disciples, first disciples are. Simon, who is called Peter, it says. Now, we know that Simon isn't given the name Peter until later, but Matthew doesn't write in chronological order, does he, necessarily. He puts it in themes, and so he is referring back. Uh, he's looking after completed work, giving the information up front, letting us know that there's going to be something important about Peter and his ministry, and also to identify him from the other Simon. And he has a brother named Andrew, and next to James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and uh, the two sons of thunder, as we find out in, in the other Gospels. These are the two James, so Matthew lets us know them by giving us their father. And in verse 3, we have Philip, also mentioned later, and uh, Bartholomew, who is not mentioned much, Thomas, the doubter, Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, that's the other Simon, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Now you'll see there, he's really distinguishing Peter and Judas. He's distinguishing Peter as the one who's going to be used in a mighty way by God, whose name is changed. Judas, who betrays Jesus and forsakes him and is condemned. And so the, uh, Matthew is letting us know that there's going to be a lot more to happen with these 12 as time unfolds. But about some of those that we know very little, he gives us a significant picture here, a significant thought, a significant principle here. And that is today in our, our churches, we have many people who do work that nobody knows about and who may not know about what they do until they get to heaven. They seem very insignificant to other people who are out before others in the forefront, uh, in the limelight, if you will, whatever it might be, with, with different leadership roles and different things, and people know who they are. Other people, you don't know who they are or, who they do, or what they do that much about. And so as we look at this, we see that it does not make them any less important in God's kingdom. These 12 were used in that inner circle as disciples, as foundation for the church. And whether that we know much about them later on or not, it's the same way in the church. It does not make them any less significant before the Lord. All of us are important before the Lord in what we do. And so these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. This is the uh, transition mentioned at the end of 
chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. Chapter 9, Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers unto his harvest. And the word send there is very important. Uh, the teachers of influence uh, <clears throat> had disciples. But the idea of sending disciples is fairly new. Sending them out on their own with the authority of that. They usually sat under that teacher and stayed around that teacher. And so this is very important. That he is sending out his disciples. They become not only the 12 disciples, but it mentions the 12 or the, uh, the apostles or the 12 apostles who are sent out. Matthew calls them apostles in verse 2. Now this is the first time the title was appointed to them. And they are the king's ambassadors. We are to be the king's ambassadors. We are called out. We may not be the twelve, but we are called out as disciples, as ambassadors, as apostles in the general sense to represent the king's business. Whose business? The king's. And so we're to go out not in our own authority, but God's authority. And this helps us in the sense that when we go out, we know that he is going to be with us. He doesn't send us out alone. These 12, he has instructed them, briefed them what to do. And basically, they're to do the same things that he was doing. And what was he doing? Performing miracles, teaching uh, God's truth, and um, uh, casting out demons. In the, so that why? So that it would demonstrate and let the people know that the scripture had been fulfilled in Christ. That Christ was the Messiah. So their charge. Here we look at the disciples' mission and ministry. Two things here. Mission and ministry. The mission. These 12 disciples, they were sent out. 12 sent out to tell the Hebrew people that the Messiah had come. This is very important. This is their first mission. In verse 5, Jesus says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. In other words, we're to be left out of this. Were we to be left out? Are we truly believers? Have you ever thought about this? Are we truly believers? Have we been left out of the kingdom? Well, let's look. But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You weren't of the house of Israel I don't know of any of you in here that are Jews so what is he talking about here well we hear similar words in Matthew 15 21 through 28 and Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon and behold a Canaanite woman came out of the region and began crying out saying have mercy on me O Lord son of David my daughter is cruelly demon possessed but he did not answer her a word and his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she's shouting out after us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the house of the sheep of Israel. Wow. People have we been deceived. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from 
their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Her faith in Jesus reminds you of the centurion, doesn't it? You see, Jesus told her that he was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus was sent to the covenant people of Israel. John tells us that he came to his own, and his own received him not. So when Jesus came to the house of Israel, what is he talking about? He's talking about the time. That's important, people. He says, first, I'm coming primarily to Israel. It's time for them. Now, I didn't say, you know, he, he, you know, he's healed Gentiles. Gentiles have believed. And so he's talking about the time in his ministry primarily. The universal ministry of Jesus, the universal reach of the gospel will only become clear. This is so very important. Will only become clear after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. After the crucifixion and resurrection, then people will begin to understand more clearly. But he was sent first in time to the, to the Jews because they should have understood. They had the word of God. They had the meaning there. They had the message of the prophets that there would be a Messiah and that he would be doing this very thing. That's what he's talking about here. Their eyes should have been open for the word of God was with them. But it was not. They refused to look for the most part. The ministry. Matthew 10, 7. And as you go, preach. Preaching is very important. Saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The proclamation. They were not just to go or, uh, and show or demonstrate. At, right after the word go is to preach. What were they to preach? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples were to go and preach the kingdom had arrived. Explain what they were doing. The authority that they had was given by the king. And it had arrived. The demonstration here for authenticity. The demonstration for the kingdom and its rival is heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the, the leopards, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely you give. They were to demonstrate the kingdom's authority by performing these miracles. The ministry to which the Lord had called his disciples was bestowed by grace and was not to be merchandised for money. How many people are called because of money? That's not a true calling. Matter of fact, that's not a true shepherd. That's a hireling. He says, I want you to focus on my provision. 
Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Jesus is letting them know that the the ministry is not about money. You don't go out and make a bunch of money and then you go into the ministry and you rely on your own resources. He says, you don't have to make millions and then think, okay, now I don't have to worry, now I can go into the ministry. No, he says, you depend upon me. I will provide. When Christ says the worker is worthy of his support, what he's saying is, he's saying, hey, People will see that you are called by me to do the work and they will give. That's how I work. And I will work in the hearts of my people that way as you are faithful. Let the one who has taught the word of God share all good things with him who teaches. Galatians 6, 6. The authenticity of their ministry will be demonstrated by the reaction from those who are benefited by it. This means that they are to look for those who are of good reputation and into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and abide there until you go. Those who are hospitable. Then in verse 12, and as you enter the house, give it your greeting. In other words, let them know that you appreciate it. The wishing of peace here for the household but if they will do not receive you then you let don't give the 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 greeting of peace don't give the greeting of of uh, uh, hospitality there uh, thanking them and and uh, being grateful for this but if it it is not worthy let your greeting of peace return to you then in verse 14 and whoever does not receive you and heed your words as you go out from that house Or that city, shake the dust off the feet. In other words, whether by an individual house or a whole city, rejection of the message meant rejection of the house or the the house by the king or the city by the king uh, and his message, the kingdom of God. It meant that they were rejecting that. And he says, go out. And shake the dust off your feet. You know, because your people have acted so wretchedly that I do not want to carry out that or carry that contamination with me to the next city. And that's a judgment upon it. And it's an expression of judgment. And then Jesus warns disciples that when they're sent out by him, that if they're rejected, this rejection is so common and wide scale that. Don't be shocked by it. He's warning them. He's letting them know. In verse 15, he continues, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Truly I say to you. It's like saying truly, truly. In other words, listen to what I'm about to say. It's going to be worse on them than Sodom and Gomorrah at that time. You see... There was all kind of perversion and rejection of God in Sodom and Gomorrah. And boy, this got their attention when they said this because they knew the story about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says it'll be more favorable for Sodom and Gomorrah at the future judgment than those who reject the truth. And what he's saying here is, he's saying Jesus is telling them that they are rejecting 
God's grace. Not only are they rejecting him through their moral life or their immoral life and through their, their uh, knowledge of God through nature and other means, he's saying they're rejecting these people, the Jews are rejecting the very, the very grace of God. And so that comes with the message that they should have known about. It's be worse for them. To much is given, much more is required. From everyone who has been given much shall be required. And Israel had the, Israel had the, the privilege of direct messianic revelation. Not so with the pagan cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples for the very first mission. And he's warning them. There will be those who reject you. In Isaiah 6, we love to, to use this. Uh, and, and we love to charge our people with this. Whom shall we send and, and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. But we don't, read, we don't give the rest of the chapter, do we? Uh, Isaiah warns. The Lord warns through Isaiah in there. When you go, there will be those who will not receive you or your message because they are dull of hearing and dim of seeing. There will be rejection. We've got to face it. That's one thing that I guess shocked me when I was first born again, when God saved me. I thought that everyone at school would be happy to hear the message. Boy, was I in for a surprise. I thought everyone would be happy because of my decision. Boy, was I surprised. And as I began to go out as a teenager, we had some teachers who would go out with us and, and they would uh, also have get-togethers and we'd go over to different ones' homes and we would invite our friends and you know, it, it was really difficult to see many of them who were your friends at one time reject you. And they didn't want to hear the message. But you know what it was even worse? My cousins. Who I fished with, who I did things with. They didn't really care about fishing with me that much anymore and doing things with me anymore when I got saved. Didn't want to hear about the message. Boy, it hurts when your family doesn't, does it? Isn't it? I mean, that's really hurting. When your friends, that hurts. It's a lot easier to go to the lost people that we don't know because we know that, hey, we don't know them, and if they don't re receive us, that's fine. But boy, when we witness to those around us, in our home, in our hometown, our families, they know us. Have they seen a difference in our life? Do they see us as Jesus' disciples? Do they see us as really believing in Christ? Are we in his authority? Do they see someone unique? And are we prepared 
because it may cause a separation. They may not want to be around us that much anymore. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.